0: Lord, you have described your word as a lamp and a light. Spirit, you don't need to illuminate your word further, but we need your illumination on our minds and on our hearts. As we open your word now, Lord, we pray for your divine, supernatural light to shine into us and about us, so that we would not only understand, but be moved to action and obedience to you uh, because of this word. We thank you for revealing yourself in the pages of scripture. We thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself in what you have made in the creation. Lord, we ask your blessing on our time together in your word, and most importantly, that you would be lifted up and glorified and exalted in this time, we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake, Amen. So we have a federal election <laughs> coming up. In uh, the official date is in eight days from now. Um, many of the various media outlets out there have been saying, if you've been following it, they've been saying that it's very hard to predict the winner between the two major front runners at the moment. Uh, really. It seems like, from what the polls are showing, that it can go either way. Nobody is miles ahead of the other person. This we can guarantee though, that there will be some voters at least, depending on how a person votes, there will be some voters who will go to the polls and who will categorically, unreservedly, enthusiastically uh, vote for their favorite candidate whoever that might be, while on the other hand, there are going to be voters who will categorically and purposely vote against that same candidate in favor of an alternate. And of course, we know that's how elections normally go, right? Some are going to wholeheartedly affirm and support a certain candidate, while others are going to wholeheartedly reject that same candidate person. Some are going to say an enthusiastic yes to candidate A, and others will say a categorical no to that very same person. Well, friends, in our scripture text this morning, Acts 2 verses 22 through 24, uh, we have something that is far more important than a federal election. The Apostle Peter, as he now is continuing the sermon that we began looking at last Sunday, now the apostle is going to introduce the name above every name into the mix, the name of Jesus. Jesus is the one who has his father's unreserved, enthusiastic, unchanging yes upon him, But as this text is going to show us, there is a determined and decided no that is pronounced on the same Jesus, a no which comes from the human community. God's yes and the no of human beings on the same Jesus. Now Peter has just finished preaching that section of Joel chapter 2 that we looked at last Sunday, the tail end of which is Peter's rehearsal of uh, the last part of that prophecy there in Acts 2:21, the part about calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. If we remember that from last week. Now, in his sermon, Peter is moving to talk explicitly about Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And we are going to pause right there for a moment. Peter says to his audience that God attested Jesus to them. Now, we could translate the Greek here as the word accredited. That would be a viable translation of the Greek word here. God accredited Jesus to you, or God endorsed Jesus to you. That is to say that Jesus had God's yes upon him, right? And, says Peter, how did God show you that yes that is on Jesus? God showed it with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Now, the mighty works and wonders and signs that Jesus performed amongst them were all evidence, evidence of God's attestation, his endorsement, his accreditation of Jesus Christ. They were all evidence that God had put his divine, magnificent yes upon Jesus, his son. The mighty works that were done through this man, Jesus, were demonstrations of God's fearsome power. Now imagine being present actually there in the ancient Near East in the first century. Imagine actually being there when Jesus was performing his mighty works. I think if it were me, I probably would have fainted honestly to see the mighty works up close. The wonders... That were done through Jesus had the effect of causing astonishment in people their wonders astonishment the signs that Jesus had performed in their midst had profoundly indicated to them great spiritual truths signs The mighty works, wonders, and signs emanating through Jesus were all God's yes that resounded from the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the walking, talking yes of God. And all of these works, wonders, and signs done through Jesus had been a revelation to the people of God, a revelation that God's new age, which had been prophesied in their Hebrew Bible, had now broken into their history. The kingdom had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, for his part, he had known, even as he's performing his works, wonders, and signs, he had known what the case was. Jesus knew full well that in him, God's kingdom had come, which is why Jesus could say in in Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus says, listen to what he says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He knew full well that the kingdom had come in him. Well, friends, these works, these wonders, these signs, as Peter's preaching, they're all fresh in the memory of Peter's audience. It hadn't been long at all, at this stage, since Jesus was crucified. And in the days and the weeks prior to the crucifixion, many of the people in Peter's audience had no doubt witnessed firsthand the works, wonders, and signs of Jesus. And so Peter says, at the end of verse 22, he says to his audience, you yourselves know about this. Peter is saying here, I don't need to catalog all of the works, wonders, and signs. You know all about them. Many of you were there when they were happening. These people who are listening to Peter preach had understood, they had understood at least that Jesus was a prophet. A prophet. At the very least, they understood that because prophets performed signs and Jesus had performed signs. In John chapter 6, just after Jesus divides the loaves and feeds the 5,000, we have John 6, 14, which reads like this. When the people saw the sign, he performed a sign. When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed who? The prophet, the prophet who is to come into the world. So there, the people equated the sign that Jesus had performed with his prophethood, with his identity as a prophet. Peter's audience, as Peter preaches in Acts 2, they understood at least that Jesus had been a prophet because of the signs that he had performed. And in the history of Israel, there had been a long history of persecuting, murdering, or attempting to murder the prophets whom God had sent. A long habit of people saying a resolute no to the prophets who had come from God. So some examples, back in 1 Kings 18, Jezebel, the lovely Jezebel... (laughs) is described as a murderer of God's prophets. Later on in the history, the prophet Jeremiah, if we remember his story, he had been a marked man during the course of his ministry. Many people wanted him dead. And he ended up thrown in a muddy cistern. And we could also mention, of course, Daniel, being thrown into the fiery furnace we could mention many others in connection with the prophets and how they were treated now in hebrews chapter 11 we have mentioned in hebrews 11 of mocking listen to this list mocking flogging torture imprisonment being sawn in two Put inside a hollowed out log and then the log is, with you in it, is sawn in half. Sawn in two, being killed. That's how God's prophets had been treated. In Luke chapter 6 verse 23, in the context when Jesus is telling his disciples to rejoice, he says that the prophets were hated, excluded, reviled and spurned and so he says if the same is is, if, if it's the case with you that you are spurned reviled and hated rejoice because it happened to the prophets also And then in Matthew 23, Jesus uses a whole host of descriptive terms there as he describes what Israel had done to the prophets of God. Jesus says that the blood of the prophets was shed. He says that the prophets had been murdered. He says that they'd been flogged, that they had been persecuted. He calls Jerusalem, the very city of God, the city of That kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So, all of that to demonstrate that the history of Israel had been a long history of saying a resolute and violent no to the prophets whom God had sent. And now, guess what? Let's go to verse 23. Peter says to his audience, this Jesus, this one who everyone perceived as at least a prophet because of the works, wonders, and signs that he had been performing, this Jesus, listen to what Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now there's a whole lot in this verse for us to consider. We're going to take time to do that. But what I want you to notice first of all is Peter's entirely bold and confrontational preaching here. He says to his audience, you crucified and killed Jesus. Now, isn't that a bold thing to say to your audience? In essence, Peter is saying, you, my audience, you are just like your forefathers who persecuted, tortured, and killed the prophets. You've done the same thing with Jesus of Nazareth you have declared your unreserved emphatic no to the one who was a walking talking obvious demonstration of god's yes you crucified and killed jesus now friends one thing if we read the book of acts one thing that characterizes the preaching (laughs) in the book of acts is boldness so let's take a little tour here a little whirlwind tour together so in acts chapter 4 when those of the high priestly family attempt to dissuade and intimidate Peter and John, it says in Acts 4.13 that that family was astonished by the boldness of the response that Peter and John gave, astonished by their boldness. In Acts 4.29, the believers pray for boldness. They pray for boldness that they would speak God's word with boldness. And then God answers that prayer in 4.31. In Acts 9, verses 27 and 28, Barnabas is described there as preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. In Acts 13.46 and again in 14.3, Paul and Barnabas speak boldly. In Acts 18.26, we have Apollos speaking boldly in the synagogue. In Acts 19.8, we have the Apostle Paul speaking boldly for three months, it says. That's a long time to speak boldly. Three months. In Acts 28.31, Paul is described as teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. There's a whole lot of boldness in the preaching and in the teaching of the book of Acts. And in our passage this morning, when Peter here is pulling no punches and he's laying out this confrontational word, you, my audience, you crucified and killed Jesus, even though you knew full well that he was a prophet. That's bold. And the boldness of the preaching in the book of Acts, we need to see this, this this conviction, this plainness of speech, this directness, this is what Peter Wagner has called, quote, the freedom to make the truth of God known without fear of opposition or consequences. The The freedom to make the truth of God known without fear of opposition or consequences. I pray and I hope you're with me that there would be an increasing boldness, not to be confused with brashness, but an increasing boldness in pulpits across this land, and may God be pleased to grant a fresh boldness to every believer in this land in such a time as we are living in now. May God be pleased to give us boldness. And this boldness, friends, comes from where? It comes from the Holy Spirit of God. As Wagner says, true boldness does not arise from the flesh. Biblical boldness is not a matter of personal style. It is the result not of native ability, but of grace. It is the result not of native ability, but of grace. The Apostle Peter, as he preaches here in the second chapter of Acts, is filled with the Spirit. Pentecost has just happened. And here in verse 23, the Spirit is saying something through Peter that directly confronts the listeners. It is bold and it has the definite ring of authority about it you crucified and killed the very one upon whom was God's resounding yes. Now you have to wonder what the immediate reaction here was on the faces of the people and in the hearts of the people as Peter, filled with the spirit, said that. I imagine at this point, I'm just imagining this, but I imagine that there was a holy hush that fell upon the audience, a holy hush. And Peter not only indicts the people of Israel for the crucifixion and death of Jesus of Nazareth, in the same breath, Peter also indicts the Romans, bold. He blames the ones who had been occupying and ruling over Israel, the government, the roman people for the death of jesus notice at the end of verse 23 peter says you crucified and killed jesus and you did that by the hands of lawless men the lawless men here are the romans the ones who are not abiding by the law of god they are lawless ones and so then friends according to peter here it was both the jewish nationals and the Romans who had conspired together to fasten Jesus of Nazareth to the cross. It was Jew and Gentile together, representative of the whole of humanity, Jew and Gentile who screamed their no to God's yes by nailing him to the cross. All of them were guilty for doing it. This was all completely true. But have you noticed, maybe you noticed, in this same 23rd verse, that there's something else going on at the very same time as the human side of it. Peter says, this Jesus, listen carefully, delivered up according to According to what? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Listen, the people who tortured, who mocked, who executed Jesus Christ were all operating in sheer wickedness. Yes, they were all responsible, and they were all guilty for their actions. Yes, they willed, and they conspired to deny Jesus Christ and have him crucified. They did this, and they are responsible for it before God, and yet... At the very same time, says the spirit-filled apostle Peter, says God in his word, at the very same time, God in his divine counsel had planned and God had predetermined the cross. Peter says here that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. The death of Jesus had been according to the definite plan of God. And that word plan, translated from the Greek, this has to do with God's resolve, with God's purpose, with God's decision. The delivering up of Jesus to the cross had come from God's resolve, from God's plan. And, says Peter, the delivering up of Jesus to the cross had been according to the foreknowledge of God. And interestingly enough, the word in the Greek here is the word prognosis. It's a Greek word. Prognosis means to know beforehand. To know in advance. Prognosis, to know beforehand, to know in advance. In advance so in God's almighty eternal wisdom the delivering up of his son on the cross had been in the plan it had been known in advance of when it happened well of course of course if we've been reading Luke's two-volume work we would already know that the cross had been planned by God in advance that the cross had been prophesied, that it had been written about in the Old Testament Scriptures. Listen, in the Gospel of Luke, the actual events of the cross take place in the 23rd chapter of Luke, Luke 23. That's where we have the report of the crucifixion. But way before the cross happens, Jesus shows us that he has clear awareness that it will happen before it happens. Jesus knew about his cross in advance. And so in Luke 9, verses 21 and 22, Jesus there, he's already talking to his disciples about a time coming when he would suffer, die, and be raised on the third day. Jesus knew about his cross before it happened. In Luke 18, verses 31 through 33, Jesus says to the twelve, in advance of the cross, he says to the twelve, listen to the detail here that he already knows about, he says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, Old Testament, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise see jesus knew about the cross and its details and what would happen to him in jerusalem well in advance and then of course after the cross happens after the resurrection happens the risen jesus says to the disciples on the emmaus road he says that it is written where in the Old Testament Scriptures, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So again, friends, the cross had been predetermined, planned by God in his eternal counsel, and prophesied in the Old Testament. Okay, Dunbar, time out, though time out how can it be that the Jews and Gentiles who were there nailing Jesus to the cross are held responsible for it guilty of it if God pre-planned the entire thing I mean it's either that those people were acting in their own free will and thus can be held responsible for it, or God was sovereign over the entire thing, having people do what he had planned all along. It's it's either an operation of human free will, or it's an operation of divine sovereignty, but you can't have it both ways, Dunbar. Both things can't be happening together. To which my reply is, as much as it fries our brain circuits, and it certainly does, as much as it seems to us logically inconsistent to have both human free will and divine sovereignty operating simultaneously, as much as it's a problem for us, the Bible the authors of the Bible unashamedly, unabashedly, and frequently present both of those things to us in the same breath. We want to say either or. It's either human free will or it's divine sovereignty. But the biblical authors, without reservation, they say that it's, it's actually both and. It's both that the human beings who nailed Jesus to the cross willed that in their wickedness and are held responsible for it and are guilty for it, and it is that God planned and predetermined the details of the event of the cross. The biblical authors are happy to present us with both and. God's sovereignty in sending his willing son to the cross does not nullify the wicked guilt of those who orchestrated the cross and carried it out friends at the end of the day there is a divine logic here a divine logic here that simply escapes our categories that escapes our fallen abilities really to sort it out fully And what's the effect of that as we see that in scripture? The effect is, I think, that when we read both things being presented to us at the same time, I think the effect on us should be to humble us and that a fresh fear of the Lord for his awesomeness should kind of descend on us. Men of Israel hear these words jesus of nazareth a man attested to you by god a man with the yes of god on him with mighty works and wonders and signs that god did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men what you did audience Peter says is you gave your emphatic no to the one upon whom was God's yes you crucified him he died but God wasn't finished yet amen (laughs) God's yes on Jesus would prevail God, as he always does, had the last word. God would have the victory. Verse 24, watch how the yes comes back. God, wonder of wonders, talking about wonders. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it i know it's not easter today but he is risen amen death cannot keep his prey jesus my savior he tore the bars away jesus my lord up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Friends, what happened on Easter morning was that God's yes on Jesus, his son, prevailed. Amen? Amen. It prevailed over all the wicked plans, over all the wicked and nefarious operations of human beings. God raised Jesus, his son, from the dead. As F.F. Bruce once described it, quote, the sentence that had been passed on Jesus by an earthly court and executed by Roman soldiers had been Reversed. Peter asserts, had been reversed by a higher court. <laughs> Amen? Now, what I want you to notice here is that Peter, boldly filled with the Spirit of God, he just simply, notice this, he simply confesses the resurrection of Jesus Christ here, declares the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't try to prove the resurrection or give arguments for the resurrection here. He just announces it in this verse. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. I think we can learn a great deal from this as we are out and about witnessing to people about Jesus Christ. There is certainly a place in today's church for apologetics, of course there is, for defending and for proving the faith, but there's also a place for straight-out, spirit-enabled confession, like Peter does here. God raised Jesus from the dead. Here I stand, full stop. I appreciate very much what the theologian John Webster has said, or once said, about simply confessing the resurrection. Webster said this, quote, What the church is called to say about the resurrection is first and foremost, simply to point to it as the most real and true and glad thing that there is. I like that. The most real and true and glad thing that there is. He says the church's first task is not to interpret the resurrection as if the resurrection needed some clever ideas and words to put wheels on it and make it move, nor is the church's task to dream up sophisticated arguments for and against the resurrection to satisfy the discriminating mind the church's task is to say here he is here is jesus christ unfathomably and insuppressibly alive (laughs) yes he is risen that's it Peter simply confesses in this verse that God raised Jesus from the dead. Peter describes the resurrection, it's very interesting. He describes it here as God loosing the pangs of death. Notice that. The word here that's translated pangs is a word that describes agonizing pain, like birthing pain. In fact, the same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, where it is actually translated as labor pains. So that the death of Jesus in verse 24, the death is described in terms of agony, such as one who is in the throes of childbirth. The death of Jesus was an agony through which God birthed something. And What did he birth? Life. Life. God raised Jesus to life from the agony of death. And the reason God did this, according to this verse at least, is because, Peter says, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Indeed, It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death because Jesus had God's eternal yes on him. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death because after all, death is the consequence for sinners, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And although Jesus took on himself our sin to the cross, Yes, he did, and he died there to forgive that sin. We know that Jesus himself committed no sin, so death could not hold him. He is risen from the dead, and that is the best news for us. Amen? Now, as we get set to wrap this up this morning, it's as far as it will go, We review the passage just very briefly here, so we remember that Peter described both human involvement and divine involvement in the same cross of Jesus Christ, but Peter, at least in this passage, he hasn't really said anything about the significance of the cross, what the cross means theologically. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, Peter hasn't said anything about that in this passage that we looked at. Nor has he said anything about the meaning, the theological import and significance of the resurrection. So far, Peter has just confessed out loud that indeed God delivered Jesus up to the cross by the hands of men and God raised Jesus from the dead. But what Peter has done here in these three verses... We need to note this as we close. What he has done is he's given us three main verbs. Three main verbs, action words, that are connected to God. Three main actions that the Father has done in his Son. Here's the first of those. That The Father has attested, accredited, endorsed, put his divine yes on his Son. The Father showed the world by doing mighty works, wonders, and signs through Jesus that indeed Jesus was and is the long-promised Messiah Christ, the one sent to be the Savior of the world. And then the second main action of the Father that Peter mentions here is in verse 23, where it says that Jesus was delivered up, according to the plan and the purpose of god the delivering up of jesus had been in the eternal plan of god and so paul can say in romans 8:32 that god did not spare his son but what gave him up delivered him up for who for us all The cross was God delivering up his son according to the eternal plan of God for us so that Jesus might come and that he might be our substitute. Hallelujah. Oh, you need a substitute. That he might be our substitute on the cross taking the death penalty there that we deserved for our sin before God. We deserve that death, and Jesus takes it as our substitute. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He gave his only son, delivered him up. The second person of the eternal trinity delivered him up that whoever believes in him, in Jesus Christ, shall not perish you are in danger of perishing unless you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord shall not perish but have what eternal life everlasting life yes our third verb third verb that is attributed to the father is found in verse 24 in his almighty power God raised Jesus from the dead. God loosed the pangs of death and raised his son and brought about in him the beginning of the new creation. Amen? Now, most of us here today, sitting here today, have said yes, our yes. We've said our yes with the Father To Jesus though we once said no to him most of us here today and watching online probably have understood our need for the provision of the cross God has brought us to that place of saying yes to Jesus God has caused us to see that we are guilty sinners that our sin against God was the reason that Jesus came to die We've seen that. We have seen that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the only sacrificial lamb of God who takes takes away the sin of the world. Most of us have trusted Jesus as our Savior, as the one whose blood was shed on the cross to forgive our sin as we stood helpless before a holy God. We are eternally grateful That God sent our substitute, Jesus Christ, and now we follow him as Lord. Most of us here today recognize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ (laughs) is the first fruits of a wider resurrection to life that is still to come. Amen? Oh, we ought to be shouting right now. It's the first fruits, the resurrection of Jesus, the first, the initial pickings off the tree of a wider harvest of resurrection that is still to come. We understand and we believe that when we die, and we will, unless Jesus comes back and takes us first, we understand that when we die, our soul goes immediately to be with Jesus, but our bodies lie in the earth waiting for resurrection waiting for resurrection as believers we know that one day after death our souls are going to be reunited with our glorified bodies come on and worship with me and we will walk eternally physically physically on the new earth with our king and we can't wait most of us have said yes to the one upon whom is god's yes but friends here today there may be one there may be more than one here today or perhaps listening online who has not yet said yes to Jesus Christ, who has not yet confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, I exhort you and then I'm done. I plead with you with everything in me as I stand here today as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I exhort and I plead with you to believe, to trust the crucified, risen and soon coming Lord Jesus Christ, as your King and your Lord and your Savior. Only by Him can you be forgiven of your sin. Only through Him can you be rebirthed as you need to be. It's Jesus who has the words of eternal life that you are hungering for. To whom else shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. It's Jesus who is going to give you life abundant. He will remove the stinger from your dying. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes every beauty on earth, and there are lots of beauties on earth, he makes every beauty on earth pale by comparison to him. He is beautiful. Fairest Lord Jesus all you have to do friend is what you got to do bring your nothing to him you got nothing bring your nothing to him empty open your empty hands and receive him and i plead with you to do that this very day would you pray with me oh father in heaven we are <clears throat> astonished and amazed, and we stand in awe of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, the meaning of our entire existence on this planet and our life is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. What other meaning can we find than what you have revealed to us concerning our lot, concerning our situation on this earth, concerning the evils that we see and experience, the pain and the suffering and the heartache that we, there's no other one to go to than Jesus Christ who has the words of eternal life and the wisdom of God. I pray today, Lord, for someone here, for someone watching who has not yet received you, come to faith and come to know you, that that would happen, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be powerful to work that miracle today and rebirth somebody. Father, thank you for this time we've had together in worship, and we pray that you would walk with us closely this week. In Jesus' name, amen.